Why do we actually want people to learn computing? Will more people learning computing actually advance racial justice? If not, why are we calling for more computing education? These questions are posed on PDF page seven by the authors Nidal Shah and Aman Yadav, apologies if I mispronounced any names, in the paper titled, Racial Justice Amidst the Dangers of Computing Creep, colon, a dialogue. Here's the abstract for that paper. Quote, the push for computing education in P12 schools, which parallels the ongoing proliferation of computing in society, has accelerated in recent years. With respect to racially minoritized groups, this dynamic of computing creep has manifested in calls to broaden participation, typically with the promise of access to economic opportunities in the computing industry. But whose interest does this broadening participation narrative actually serve? Is this narrative adequate to the urgent project of racial justice? And if not, what as a field do we need instead? In this article, we present a dialogue that echoes major debates in the field about these critical issues. First, we discuss current trends and approaches to racial equity and racial justice in computing education. Next, we consider the possibilities and limits of systemic change in the field. Finally, we debate whether it is even possible for computing education to advance racial justice given the corporate and governmental stakeholders that currently shape the field of computing. We conclude with questions and provocations for the field to consider as this dialogue continues." End quote. So today's episode of the CSK8 podcast is going to unpack this paper in relation to computer science education, mainly as the author said, in the PK12 grade levels. If you don't know who I am, my name is Jared O'Leary. I've worked with every single grade kindergarten through doctoral student in music education and computer science education contexts, as well as overseeing and designing professional development and creating curriculum content used by educators and students all around the world. But now I'm a professional gamer, drummer, and computer science educator who hosts this podcast. In other words, a professional nerd. I gotta say, whenever I read these articles, I go through it in advance and like highlight some sections and quotes that I think are interesting so that way I can read it off. And I'm skimming through it right now, and honestly, <laughs> more words are highlighted than not, if not like three quarters of like some of the pages. So I highly recommend taking a look at this article. It is available for free. I do include a link to it in the show notes as it is found on Google Scholar. The show notes can be found at jaredoleary.com where there are hundreds if not thousands of free computer science education resources as well as 176 podcast episodes before this one that I highly recommend checking out because there's some awesome guests who have been interviewed on the show as well as more unpacking scholarship episodes like this one. There's also a bunch of gaming and drumming stuff on there because again, I'm a nerd and that might interest you as well. So the paper begins with questions, who are we, why this dialogue? So the authors kind of summarize that they have a background, a wide ranging background in education. For well over 20 years, the authors have been both working in the fields in different ways. So as a teacher, researcher, teacher educator, as a programmer, computer science education researcher, etc. Niral describes himself as, quote, a brown boy in the Midwestern United States, end quote, who grew up with structural racism. And then Aman describes himself as somebody who spent their time living in a privileged upper middle class lifestyle in India for the first 21 years of their life, and then has been in the United States as a, quote, minoritized brown man, still with certain privileges for the last 22 years, end quote. Both those quotes are from page one of the PDF. Now, an important thing that the authors note in the introduction is that this is just one lens or one way that you can look at justice-related issues in education. So from a racial lens. So they zoom in that microscope specifically on this, but acknowledge there are many social justice issues in education that we also need to discuss as a field. So the authors talk about how they are going to engage in a collaborative dialogue. Now, this kind of reminds me honestly of like a podcast discussion between two people who have spent a lot of time thinking through and doing research on racial justice issues related to education. Again, I highly recommend taking a look at this actual paper, but I'm going to do my best to summarize just enough to make you go, wow, that was a cool episode. and wow, I really want to read that paper. So the first question that the authors pose is, what do you 
see as significant trends in competing education and what are their implications for racial justice? So Neeral begins by discussing something known as computing creep, which is, quote, the encroachment of computing technologies, as well as discourses about computing into nearly every dimension of human life, end quote. It's from PDF page two. So they relate this to the warfare term mission creep, which talks about, quote, a slow drift away from a military endeavor's original goals as the mission expands in unfocused and often harmful directions, end quote. So they talk about how this has kind of happened with computing education. How, might you ask? Here's another quote from page two that answers that. Quote, we are currently seeing an unprecedented push of computing into peak 12 education systems across the US, with calls for compulsory computing education and changes to graduation requirements. In part, this trend is the result of decades of slow building federal, state, and local policy. So the author described how computing creep has occurred when computer science education policy efforts have kind of like made this big push for computer science in K-12 education. Whether it's like, hey, we're gonna have mandatory standards, which I've talked about in recent episodes on some of the problems with standards. Like check out episode 175, the centrality of curriculum and the function of standards. Quote, the curriculum is a mind altering device. Or check out the episode before that, 174, educational aims, objectives, and other aspirations. These pushes for computer science in the schools have made it so that there's more funding from the government and from corporations and more opportunities to get computer science into the schools. Sounds great, right? I mean, who wouldn't turn down like a large NSF grant for broadening participation to help out minoritized individuals or groups in communities across the United States? We've also had this push for concepts like computational thinking, which I ranted about in the last episode called The End of Programming, which is episode 176. All of these pushes for computer science education has led to more teachers teaching computer science and more students engaging with computer science. So that's a good thing, right? Well, maybe. The author mentions on PDF page two, quote, it proliferates with few checkpoints and with little consideration of its effects on society, end quote. So they mentioned that a concept known as mathematical thinkings came about in the post-Sputnik 1950s. And so many mathematics educators drew on analogies between mathematics and like making music, or rather compositions of music, or even plot structures in like Shakespeare's works. And honestly, I hadn't actually heard of this concept, but some of the parallels that they were drawing definitely resonate with me and what I've heard on computational thinking, relating it to anything and everything, like tying your shoes. Which again, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, I'd argue that's not computational thinking. That's just tying your shoes. So Nirdal ends this section by asking, quote, who does computing creep actually serve? And further, does computing creep actually serve racial justice? End quote. Amon picks up here. So this dialogue kind of goes back and forth. And so they say who the author is, is kind of talking about different stuff. And when they have like a joint statement together. Now Amon's response, I honestly, we could get a pillow for him and just like put it right underneath where he would drop that mic because it's a doozy of a quote. So Amon begins by saying, okay, well this push for putting computing and computer science into P12 schools is problematic in some ways. One reason might be because the push is largely driven by a narrative of trying to get people into pursuing a career in computer science or getting into pursuing like continued education and higher education, like to get a major or degree in computer science. Quote, the notion goes that if we introduce computing from the early grades, students will be more likely to take computing courses as they move through the P12 system and beyond. The eventual goal being to meet labor demand in the tech industry. While I believe in pluralistic goals of computing education and agree that we need students to pursue computing majors, I find the values behind computing creep to be problematic. The way we do computing now is not designed to serve teachers or their students. End quote. Now you might be listening to that and go, wait, what? 
So Amon goes a little bit further and asserts that, quote, right now, computing education is designed to value the goals of computing, not the needs of teachers and students. For example, a number of professional development opportunities for elementary teachers focus on teaching them scratch so they can bring coding into the classroom to teach disciplinary content like math or English language arts. Or worse, elementary teachers go to a limited professional development to learn to teach the CS Fundamentals course. In both of these cases, we forget that elementary teachers are not computing teachers and that they do not have the computing expertise to be able to teach standalone CS or adapt Scratch to fit their curriculum. Plus, we should not be burdening teachers to figure out how to use coding to teach core subjects just so we can introduce coding to young learners. There is also no evidence that using coding to teach disciplinary ideas actually leads to better learning in those disciplines. In fact, it may even hurt learning. A recent study with a large number of elementary students found that using Scratch to teach mathematics concepts, example, Euclidean division, additive decomposition, and fractions, led to negative effects on students' proficiency with those mathematical ideas, end quote. That's from PDF page two and page three, and whoo boy. Now that Amon has potentially raised some hackles on the back of your neck, let me further drive it home as somebody who previously created professional development that taught teachers how to do scratch. I agree. And so both the authors actually talk about this a little bit more later on. So I won't do a rant right here quite yet. I'll talk about it more a little bit later, so stay tuned. So Amon goes on to describe what racial equity in computing education means to them, and it aligns heavily with all the things that I've talked about on interest-driven learning. I'll include links to other podcast episodes in the show notes at jaredoleary.com. It's more interest-driven learning podcast episodes, like the interview with Mitch Resnick, which is titled Lifelong Kindergarten with Mitch Resnick, and that's episode 106. And so Neral responds by talking a little bit more about their understanding of racial equity in computing education. And they problematize something that I've talked about in other episodes, specifically on integration. So I'll include a link to some integration podcast episodes again at jaredleary.com. So one of the things they mentioned is that by crowbarring computer science and computing education into domains, like let's say in elementary school, this makes it so that there is less time for other subject areas that might be better suited to address some of the racial issues that have been going on in schools and in the communities that the students are living in and beyond that. So for example, less time for social studies and humanities education in schools, because we are now trying to add in more standards, which is one of the concerns that I have is that as we continue to add in yet another subject area every few years, we're gonna get to a point where we spend so little time on all of them that they're all just diluted and we just skim the surface of understanding in many different areas that are all important for different reasons. Now, the next section starting on page three asks the questions, what are dominant approaches to racial equity and justice in computing education? How do you appraise their potential to achieve those goals? So mom begins this section by talking about how there's a belief that in order to remove racism from products and technologies, etc., we need to have more people of color, in particular in computing jobs, computing careers, etc. How do we do this? well, we need to diversify the pool of people who are computer scientists and who work on those products. And we do this by starting earlier in the P12 schooling system and encouraging from preschool, kindergarten, etc., to start learning how to engage with computer science, either through coding or maybe through computational thinking. And in order to actually teach this, we have had to have trained thousands of teachers over the last several years in order to try and fill this gap or this need in order to address the new standards, the new policies, the new district and state mandates, which might assist with broadening participation, not just in the P12 or K12, but in higher education and in the tech industry. But to do this, quote, we need to ensure that students have highly qualified teachers with knowledge of computing and that teachers are implementing pedagogical approaches that center students' lived experiences, end quote. It's from page four. And that is something that I strongly recommend and designed into professional development experiences that I created 
as well as the curricular content that I created. It was all about getting it so that teachers could focus on working with students one-on-one, -on -one, helping them explore their interests in a way that was individually meaningful for them, rather than just saying, hey, 30 students, you're all gonna create the exact same project. It was, hey, 30 students, let's all create 30 unique projects that are interesting to each one of you. Maybe you'll work together. Maybe you'll work on your own. Maybe you'll work on a different pace. And in my own class, it was maybe you'll use a different language than the person next to you. You might use Swift, the other person might use Ruby, the next person might use JavaScript, the next person might use Scratch. I don't know. Not only were the projects determined by what students were interested, but so were the platforms, the languages, and even the pedagogies that I had used for them. Some students really wanted to work in groups, and other students really didn't want that at all. They just wanted to work on their own. I was one of those students. I prefer to just work on my own. Let me, even if it's harder, I want to just like figure out how to do this. And that worked well for me. So for students like those, I worked with them using a different pedagogical approach than students who preferred to work with other people. And that's okay. That should be expected. And thankfully, I had administrators who came in and valued that. They liked seeing how I was treating the students as unique individuals. And they like seeing students who were normally disengaged in their other classes, very much so engaged in creating something that was actually meaningful to them. They didn't have this opportunity in most of their other classes. So if you have an administrator who's like, no, I wanna see everyone doing the same thing, I guess a question that you might ask them is, what's more important, having everyone obey and follow the same rules or getting it so that people actually enjoy learning? My answer clearly is the second one, but for an administrator, they might disagree. And if you do, just tell them that Dr. O'Leary says they're wrong. It'll make me laugh. I'm Dr. O'Leary, by the way. I just go by Jerry. But there are more nuances to this that are discussed in this particular paper, and that can be discussed outside of this. So Neural responds and talks about how this framing of discourse around like computing jobs being a way to advance oneself economically while it may be true for individuals, it might not necessarily be true for communities at scale. Quote, broadening participation in computing serves corporate interests by offering an expanded labor supply from which to select the most productive workers. It is true that this might benefit an elite subset of BIPOC individuals, but the macroeconomics of the global labor market mean that access to computing is unlikely to ever benefit BIPOC communities at scale, end quote. It's from page four. And that is a really important distinction to make. Yeah, certain individuals might like really benefit from a high salary working in a computing job. Is that going to necessarily improve BIPOC communities? Maybe, question mark? Probably not. But in episode 117, I unpacked a paper titled STEM Diversity and Inclusion Efforts for Women of Color, colon, a critique of the new labor system. In this particular paper, it talked about how we could use sharecropping as a metaphor for what goes on in corporations. In particular, how they treat BIPOC individuals. So yeah, there are economic incentives, but these BIPOC individuals are moving into communities that do not support their individuality or what they bring to the table in terms of their experiences, their understandings, their cultural identities. So even if people are making making more money by going into a computing job, they might be going into a job that is abusive, treats them poorly, has this like bro culture that is like known in a lot of Silicon Valley type jobs. Is that a win? I can say it's not worth it to stick around a hostile culture just for a paycheck. If anything, it'll make you resent the field. So personally, like I've chosen to lead jobs like that in the past. And I'd recommend the same thing for other people who are experiencing similar things. So just because we might be giving higher paying jobs to BIPOC individuals doesn't mean we've at all addressed all the problems that will come with that high paying job, potentially. And again, going back to Neral's point, this is just focusing on individuals, not on how to improve communities. So then we switch back to a response from Amman. And the response is basically, so if all of these problems exist, quote, what does a computing education focused on racial justice look like? 
First, we cannot just focus on computing education without addressing the underlying inequities that teachers and students face in their schools. In computing education, this has manifested when we put teachers in classrooms with only one week of professional development without any formal training in computing. This again is driven by the need to expand access, where curriculum providers count the number of teachers trained as evidence of success. In the name of access, we are providing students of color with an inferior computing education. Second, we need to move away from focusing on just developing technical competencies within computing education and instead center social political aspects of design and deployment of technology. This requires us to rethink the goals of computing education, what we teach in it and how we teach it. Equity and inclusion goals of computing cannot be achieved with a race evasive and neutral stance towards computing. Computing education should focus on preparing students to not only be designers of technologies, but also develop critical perspectives about technologies. We should use computing to develop critics, not technicians, end quote. This is from page four, PDF. All right, so there's two main ideas there. One has to do with like teachers and the other has to do with the aims or goals of curricula or education in general. So a couple years ago, I was a co-author on a paper titled Measuring the Effect of Continuous Professional Development on Elementary Teachers' Self-Efficacy to Teach Coding and Computational Thinking which is a mouthful. One of the things that we talked about is how important it is to not just do this workshop or week model where it's just like, here's everything you need to know about computing and cool, we'll see you never again. Enjoy, have fun, and good luck. You're gonna need it. Instead, the approach that we recommend in the article is taking a continuous professional development approach that took the course of two to three years. So maybe once or twice a quarter, we'd have a professional development person go in, they'd facilitate maybe a six hour workshop that not only introduced the concepts that the teachers needed to understand, but also the pedagogies to do that. And so they model this in the professional development session in a way that they might teach it with students. And then we unpack the pedagogies of like, well, how did I teach it in this way? And each time we would do these professional developments would be a different way to teach it, different way to model it every single time. So when a teacher would come back the next quarter, they'd learn something new. Like one time we might focus on assessment types and different types of assessment. Another time we might focus on how to help students with debugging or whatever. We could have done all of this in a week, but this would have been a disservice to the teachers. By making it so that we introduce just an enough to get the teachers ready to go for that next quarter and to be able to be independent and work through all the lessons that I had created, they would have time to learn something, implement over the quarter, and then come back and learn something new. That period of implementation made it so that they could come back with questions and go, hey, I actually tried this and here's something that worked really well and here's a something else that I got some questions about. If we had done all of the PD sessions in a week long period and said, good luck, you're on your own, they wouldn't have had that opportunity to actually try implementing it with the students and come back with questions and follow up with, hey, what are some pedagogies that might help me with students who are having difficulties with blah? Or I wanna talk more about this other thing. When you did that for multiple quarters over two or three years, it really did help improve self-efficacy of those teachers who are engaging in this. So again, check out that paper if you're interested in learning more about it, I'll link to it in the show notes. So I very much so agree with what Aman is saying right here. We can't just give them a bunch of knowledge in a workshop for a weekend or a week and then say, cool, you've learned everything you need to know about computer science education, have fun. That is not helping the teachers and that is not going to help the students either. This is my own opinion here, but if you are signing up for professional development with a company, some kind of organization, whatever, that claims that they'll be able to teach you everything you need to know about computer science in a weekend or in a week, and you've never done any computer science before, they're lying to you. What's like happening is they're having this like teacher in a box approach where the curriculum just teaches it for you and you're there basically for classroom management. That kind of professional development experience is likely going to be a waste of your time and is likely going to teach pedagogy
strategies that have nothing to do with racial justice and equity, because it's most likely going to teach you how to teach everybody the exact same way rather than working with individuals one-on-one, -on -one, which is where you should be heading, in my opinion. But that actually leads into the second point. So the second point is maybe a bit of a difference of opinion in images of curriculum. I talk about this more in episode 125, which is titled Images of Curriculum, but some people might conceive of curriculum as content or subject matter. Others might think of it as a program and plan activities. Some might think it's intended learning outcomes or cultural reproduction, or just curriculum as an experience, or discrete tasks and concepts, or as an agenda for social reconstruction, which I'd argue might be what Aman is arguing for, or curriculum as career, etc. There are many different ways that you can kind of conceive of the aims of education. These images of curriculum and aims of education may or may not align with some of the visions for education that I discussed in episode 20, CS for what? Diverse visions of computer science education in practice. Maybe you think that computer science should be a digital literacy. Maybe you think it should be a form of self-expression. Maybe you think it should be a vocation training, like to get a job as a computer scientist or a programmer, or whatever. All these different images and visions may or may not align with your colleagues or your administrators or your policymakers in your state. And so we need to have conversations around this. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I do highly recommend taking a look at them. And they are listed in the show notes at jaredoleary.com for this episode. So that final statement that I read off the quote for, which was, we should use computing to develop critics, not technicians. It depends on what your visions are and it depends on what your images of curricula are. While I might agree with this statement, other people might disagree, and that's to be expected, to be honest, in education. So the next question is, what are some approaches in computing education you find promising, and what are the limits of those approaches? So I feel like Aman and I would get along really well here, because uh, here's a quote from page four. Quote, I have problems with computing pedagogies that push students into cookie-cutter curricula and put them in passive roles, rather than being active participants in their own learning. This is against what I believe is a value of computing, to empower students as leaders of their own creativity and learning, end quote. PDF page four. I totally agree. This podcast, if I haven't made it clear enough in this particular episode, really focuses on equity issues. And I often discuss about it in relation to interest-driven learning. If you think of interest as like a broader framing of culturally relevant or culturally responsive or culturally responsive sustaining pedagogies, etc., which I've talked about in several other episodes, not only does interest account for cultures that a lot of people identify in terms of like demographic information, like somebody's race or ethnicity or their gender or their socioeconomic status or their disability status or what their primary language is at home, etc. We can also broaden that understanding to also include like interest in like drumming or in video games or sports or underwater basket weaving. It's this broader interest-driven area that can account for not only different cultures that are identity related, but cultures that are identity related outside of demographics that are often discussed in survey data, etc. I describe myself, one of the reasons, as a multiplicity because I have many identities. Like I said at the start of this podcast, I'm a gamer, I'm a drummer, I'm a computer science educator, and those are just three of the labels that I'd like use to describe myself. All of those have different cultures that kind of intersect with each other and diverge from each other in interesting ways, at least in my opinion. And if we focus on interest-driven learning, it can account for not only racial equity issues and allow students to explore that and hopefully improve the issues that might be impacting them or people they know negatively or even people they don't know. But it also allows them to explore other things that might be a lighter topic. 
As I've talked about in other episodes, sometimes students go to a class just to escape some of that. Like I enjoyed music classes so much because it didn't make me think about all of the injustices that were going on in the world that was literally making me suicidal, which I talk about more in episode 48 titled Depression, Suicide, and Computer Science Education. I highly recommend people listening to that episode. It is the only episode that I repeat every year for National Suicide Prevention Week because I think it is that important for people to be aware of this. But the point is some students might want to dive into some like social justice issues in computer science class. Great, we should allow them to do that. Other people might not. And from a mental health standpoint, from an SEL standpoint, they might be doing that because they need that mental break from those topics because they're engaging that whether they want to or not because of their lived experiences in their day-to-day lives. Which is why in other episodes I've said, we should allow the opportunity and encourage people to explore social justice issues, but not necessarily require it of everybody, especially in instances where it might negatively impact a student's like well-being if they are surrounded by those issues 24-7 and can't escape them. Hopefully that makes sense. But as I've learned by sharing stuff on social media, <laughs> a lot of what I say gets taken out of context unintentionally. So apologies if I offend anybody. It's not the, the what I'm going for. I'm just trying to help. Here's another interesting quote that Neral says in this particular section. Quote, computing professionals and computing educators who themselves find joy while learning computing tend to over extrapolate from their own experiences. BIPOC joy should be a priority but joy can be found in a number of educational pursuits. We should not assume that there are versions of computing education that will have mass appeal, end quote. That's from page five. That is such an important point to make. I learned that the hard way. The, uh, my senior year, I started teaching drumline, my senior year of high school, because uh, we didn't have an instructor anymore. And so I was like, oh, I'm a section leader. Um, I want to become an educator. So my band director was like, cool, you can teach the drumline. Great experience for myself, maybe not for some of the students I, I worked with, because I very quickly learned that my obsessive passion for learning how to improve and get better at the drums, while that may have like made it so that I was practicing many hours a day, every single day of the week, that was not shared by everybody else on the drum line. While drumming may have literally saved my life, it was just a hobby that somebody was doing for fun or for social reasons. And I didn't understand that those two things could exist simultaneously in the same space, and that's okay. So it's the same thing with like computing education. One of the things that you might ask yourself is, okay, well, if you had a really good experience in computer science classes, maybe in high school that you took, and you really enjoyed it, let's say there are 30 people in that class, how many of those 30 people ended up becoming computer science? educators or went into the field of computer science. My guess is it's not 100%. Why is that? Well, because it's not going to resonate with anyone and everyone. I mean, think about like all of the other careers and subject areas you're not going into or not teaching. Why didn't those all resonate with you in the way that computer science may have? Those same reasons why you did not go into becoming a professional underwater basket weaver are likely the same reasons why somebody's not going into computer science education or computer science as a career. And that's okay, which is why I know I unpopularly share the opinion that I don't think any subject area should be required, but I won't rant about that today. Now, a little bit further down, Raul says, quote, what worries me is when schools and teachers try to connect with BIPOC identities and cultural practices, mainly for the purpose of increasing access to dominant forms of education, which is usually about producing workers better positioned for the modern labor market. A little bit further down, quote, where do we actually need computing? Although it might be technically possible to use algorithms to analyze Toni Morrison's writings, what is the purpose of this exercise, end quote. And that's something that I have critiqued on like the integrations of computer science and especially computational thinking into other areas like the arts. Like my background's in music education, 
at least all my degrees are, and I was a band director and general music educator and percussion director, etc. And so whenever I see somebody talk about computer science and music, my ears perk up because I've done a lot of presentations and written publications on that and my dissertations even on that intersection. So I'm like, yeah, let's see what you got. I can't wait to learn from you. And then when it's something like, well, we can analyze like how the structure of lyrics is like the same thing as using a loop. Okay, you could do that, but I don't know any composers or lyricists who would do that, so why? But if we connect with what I think the author is saying, because again, like language is situated, so maybe a misunderstanding, which has certainly happened to me with some of these podcast episodes where people listen to something, and I'm like, oh, that's an interesting interpretation. Not what I meant. But I often see people engage with different cultures in a culturally specific way rather than a culturally relevant way. Like we're going to engage in a lesson about X culture or X identity, and you might learn some facts and figures about that culture, and you might engage in some computer science concepts and practices, but it's basically putting the culture on display, often in a way that is one direction. You're looking at this culture. You're observing it. You're not actually engaging in dialogue with that culture or that identity. You're just talking about them or learning about them. And why are you doing that? One way that we might interpret that is it's to serve corporate needs. We want people to see a place doing this thing and we need more workers, so this is one way to do it. I'm not saying that's what's going on, but that's a way that you can interpret that. And so it's important for us to consider how are we doing this? Now, if that sounds alarming to you or you wanna learn more about this idea, uh, John Stapleton and I talk about this in a paper that is called Fostering Intersectional Identities Through Rhizomatic Learning. And this is episode 150, where we actually both take turns reading off different sections of that paper. So I highly recommend taking a look at that to kind of learn more about like what does culturally relevant mean and how does that differ from culturally specific education, which is what I often see people mislabeling as culturally relevant education or culturally responsive education. And again, I'll link to that in the show notes at jaredoleary.com. Now, one more thing that the authors mentioned that I'll talk about here, and again, I recommend reading this paper, is they talk about the importance of including ethics. But Mineral has a really good point about how, quote, business schools have had mandatory ethics courses for years, but it hasn't stopped malfeasance in the corporate world. Such education might make executives aware that they're doing, that what they're doing is unethical, but too often capitalist concerns override ethical decision-making, end quote. And both those arguments really make sense to me. Yeah, we should be talking about ethics. And if you do happen to follow computer science standards, you probably have some standards related to ethics of computing, but it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to follow it. I mean, how many times have we seen speed limits posted everywhere? And you look and you see somebody who is like, you know, going 20 over while checking their Twitter feed. They're aware that there is a speed limit and they're just choosing to get somewhere else faster. It doesn't mean they're following the speed limit or, you know, safe driving. So while it's important to talk about ethics, we also need to kind of talk about enforcing those ethics, whether it's through policy or responses from groups and corporations. Now, one episode that kind of talks about that is episode 153. And so if you listen to, it's titled, What If Friere Had Facebook? A Critical Interrogations of Social Media Woke Culture Among Privileged Voices in Computer Science Education Discourse. I highly recommend taking a look at that one and talks about like cancel culture and things like that and how you can respond in ways that engage in dialogue with problematic behaviors, like problematic ethics or the lack of in like tech fields or careers or products, etc. And hopefully you can engage in dialogue in ways that don't just come across as virtue signaling. So if you want to learn more about that, take a look at that episode. Again, episode 153 is in the show notes at jaredoleary.com. All right, so the next question that the authors talk about is how do we actually change the system of computing education towards racial justice? Is this even possible? So Amon begins this by talking about how, quote, curriculum providers focus on scale 
which means they want to reach as many students as possible by providing short professional learning workshops for a large number of teachers. We need to bring computing education to P12 classrooms in ways that support teachers to collaborate locally with community experts and technologists, end quote. So this is from page six of the PDF. I totally agree. And I think we need to engage in this in a way that teaches them how to fish rather than teaching them like, here's this teacher in a box, teacher-proof curriculum that you can use and it's not at all related to your kids, but it's being used around the world. So it's gotta be great, right? No, ideally you want to be able to modify the projects, modify the content to match the individuals that you are working with. Just because like award-winning educators, researchers, scholars, blah, 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 have worked on the curriculum doesn't mean it's great for every kid that you work with. So I highly recommend customizing them in some kind of way. So if you are signing up for professional development that doesn't encourage you to do that, I'd go somewhere else. And if you don't have the opportunity to go somewhere else, then you're likely gonna need to find ways to customize it on your own. This podcast can likely help with that, especially the interviews that chat with some CS educators across the K-12 and higher education space who talk about how they actually do that. So check out some of those podcasts. Now, Naral has a really interesting point on page six. It says, quote, the major forces now pushing computing were not created to prioritize racial justice. Thus, we shouldn't be surprised when they do things that propagate racism, end quote. It's from page six. What are these major forces? Well, like government, uh, federal, state, local, nonprofits, corporations, etc. And again, that podcast episode that's a critique of the new labor system kind of talks about this a little bit. However, here's a little thing that I'm gonna kind of add to that. In 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, we had a lot of organizations and corporations talk about how equity was so important to them not only as like an uh, organization, as a collective, but as individuals within that collective. If you were in an organization like that, a question that you might ask people in your organization and yourself is to have each one of you name one act of support or involvement or improvement they as individuals or as a collective have made that aligned with the shared supports that those organizations posted on their socials. If you don't have an abundantly long list of things to share, then your organization's actions and words might not be aligned with the statements that were released. And people within those organizations and people outside of those organizations have taken note. So I totally agree that we really need to talk about racial justice issues as well as other equity-centered issues, but we can't just talk the talk. We gotta walk the walk. I'm trying to do that with this podcast by like really emphasizing equity issues in a variety of equity issues, not just race like is discussed in this particular paper, but also in the, like the service that I do for different organizations and just my general day-to-day -day being. But I know that's easier said than done, depending on what kind of a job you have, where you live, etc. Some of you have more pressures and stresses than I do. And I've always kind of been fortunate enough that I could say, what are you going to do? Fire me? That's fine. You don't like that I'm engaged in equity work. I don't want to work somewhere that doesn't want me to be engaged in equity work. But you might not have the privileges that I've got to be able to take that kind of stance. And I understand that. So one of the things that the authors are arguing for is perhaps focus on a harm reduction model if you don't think like you can actually do something to change the policies that are negatively impacting the communities and the people that you work with. But Amon on page six mentions, quote, I do believe that computing is a foundational literacy to be an informed citizen, and we could teach it in ways that put local community goals at the center and advance racial justice, end quote. And that really resonates with me. However, I received a really interesting comment on YouTube on one of the excerpts or highlights from a podcast that I recently did. The comment brought up some interesting points that can kind of relate to this. So what if the community's like local interest was actually against advancing racial justice, which we have seen in some areas? What do we do at that point? And if we say that's problematic and try and say, no, you need to do that. Is that a form of colonization? And I don't really have an answer to 
that particular prompt. So I'm just going to throw that out into the ether and say, what do you think? But the last couple of questions that the authors have is, what strategic visions do you see as promising in computing education to advance racial justice? What questions would you pose to the field? Some of those questions are read at the very beginning, but here are a couple more that were not read. Quote, is more computing in the P12 curriculum really a good thing? Who does more computing actually benefit? And does that actually serve BIPOC communities? End quote. And those are some certainly interesting questions to consider. Now, at the end of these unpacking scholarship episodes, I'm going to share some of my own questions or lingering thoughts. Again, I highly recommend reading through this paper. I highlighted the majority of it and linked to it at jaredaleary.com in the show notes. But a question that I have is, would the authors make the same recommendations for improving racial equity if they focused on other forms of equity? If not, which approach to competing education do you use when you have to choose between focusing on one form of equity over another? So if they're going to be different, like I'm going to teach one way that is more beneficial to addressing race-related equity issues versus another pedagogical approach or even content that would be better suited for, I don't know, addressing trans-related equity issues, which one do you choose? At what scale do you make those decisions off of? Is it that we focus on higher percentages of groups being impacted with the communities that we serve? Or do we make those decisions based off of the communities we work in, or do we make them on state level, national level, or global equity-related issues. So I totally agree that we can and should focus on race-related equity issues, but there are also many other equity issues as the authors have mentioned at the start of their paper. When we find that certain pedagogies and certain topics are more beneficial for one area over another, it's difficult to figure out which ones are you supposed to focus on in what context and at what times and with whom you are working with. And I don't really have an answer to that. So I'm posing that more as something to think through as a field and something that we should further the dialogue in. This paper was great in terms of like hearing the different voices from the two different authors and hearing that combined discussion at the end and the beginning. And I recommend that the field kind of do more of that. Doesn't necessarily even need to be in paper form. Like you could come on this podcast episode and I'd be happy to engage in a dialogue that with, with you. I mean, you're already engaged in many, many interviews with some awesome people on this show, but this is just one podcast. You could even start your own or just create like a webinar or like a informal get together, like once a quarter where you talk about these things with your colleagues or peers or whatever. Again, I highly encourage you to take a look at this paper. Thank you so much for everyone who listened. If you're watching this on YouTube, give it a thumbs up. Leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. If you're watching this elsewhere, if you'd leave a rating, that'd be great. It just helps more people find it. Or, you know, just share this episode or some of the highlights with people you know. That'd be much appreciated. Stay tuned next week for another episode. Until then, I hope you're all staying safe and are having a wonderful week.